This is an ABC podcast. I found myself on the job market unexpectedly, and I've worked in senior office business positions for three and a half decades. Meet Claire. She's in her mid-50s and has been job hunting for about a year. And I was surprised, given the low unemployment rate we currently have, how hard it's been to get through to more than a cursory interview, given the level of experience and skills that I can offer an organisation. And it's not like an early retirement is on the cards for her. I'm not in a position professionally, emotionally or financially to step away from the workforce. And seeing how pension has now been raised to 67, I felt like I'd been thrown onto the scrap heap in my mid-50s and thought, what am I supposed to do for 12 years? But Claire is far from alone in experiencing this. It's not a story that shows up in the statistics. It's a story that's much more subliminal. And it's an anecdotal story as told through individual people's experiences. How can I challenge these generational stereotypes? We're way more alike across the generations than we are different. Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on this episode of This Working Life, why we're putting people into boxes at work and how it's impacting us and our workplaces. First box, older workers. While attitudes towards older workers have improved since we started this research in 2014, there is still, in some workplaces, bias against older workers. That's Sarah McCann-Bartlett, CEO of the Australian HR Institute. Last week, the latest research on employing and retaining older workers was published in a combined survey done by the Australian HR Institute and the Australian Human Rights Commission. It found that one in six organisations will not consider hiring people aged 65 and above. But why? They're giving reasons like we're not getting enough applications from older workers. The other reasons include perhaps older workers or there's a perception that older workers actually aren't quite as good at using technology. And some say salary expectations are a little bit too high for them. So they've got a range of, of reasons. And when we say older workers, what has been the trend in terms of how people are defining older workers? When we did the research two years ago in 2021, we were really surprised because it felt like older workers were getting younger. Do you remember that? Yes, because I remember I was turning 50 and, <laughs> and that was defined as being an older worker in those days. But I think it's sort of etching up again, isn't it? It's moved up again and now it seems like over 60 is, is where the definition of, of older worker really starts. So it's gone back to the longer term trend and we think 2021 was just a little bit of a blip in the data. An intriguing part of this research was that even though there was a stated reluctance to hire older workers, this didn't actually match the lived experience because many said they saw no difference between older and younger workers when it came to their job performance, from energy levels to concentration and adapting to change. So what's causing this mismatch? There is this bias creeping in and we need to be able to understand when we are applying a stereotype or acting in a biased way. Now to our second box, middle-aged workers. I'm Stephanie Wood. I'm a freelance writer, journalist, author. Recently, Stephanie wrote a Good Weekend feature article, Middle-Aged, Middle-Class, 
underemployed. And at first, she wasn't convinced it was much of a story. Well, to be honest, my editor at Good Weekend magazine actually commissioned it from me. And in the early days of my research late last year, I was a little bit worried that maybe there wasn't a story there because unemployment is so low, historically low. And I reached out to a number of economists and mm-hmm. uh, they were telling me there's no nothing st- to see there's here. nothing to see here. <laughs> there, you know, people can get jobs. Employers are begging for, for workers. So I was a little bit worried but kept on digging and it's not a story that shows up in the statistics. It's a story that's much more subliminal. It's an anecdotal story as told through individual people's experiences. And what was the turning point? When did you realise that indeed there was a story in this? The more people I spoke to and I heard, I mean, in many cases, their pain, really, and their great stress about their working futures. And it was it was a cumulative thing. The more people I spoke to, the more I started to see that, yeah, this is really something. And then, once her story was published, the emails came flooding in. Just so many people saying, yes, this is my story. So, Stephanie, let's start with your story. You're in your mid-50s and a highly experienced journalist. You're a highly experienced writer. How are you feeling about your skills and where you are in your career right now? Worried, really worried. I love journalism and there are days though that I go, maybe I didn't choose the right profession because my career's mainly been in print, in newspapers and magazines and print is dying. I feel as if I'm the the lace maker or the barrel, the cooper of, of the 21st century. <laughs> Skills no longer required. Yeah, as though I'm sort of the crazy woman running after a bus that's disappearing into the distance and I'm running after it going, stop, stop, wait for me. <laughs> um, it's... It's really scary. It's like, is my is my time over? Have I had my time? You know, do I have to make way now for the, the 20, 30-somethings? And what's your reaction to the scale of this issue once you started digging and, and asking for that personal experience? The, the complexion of the story kept changing and its weight to me changed as I kept researching. And so in terms of the scale overall, I think it's an unfolding story And I'm hoping that attention will be paid on this way more than it has been. You know, I wonder because, you know, we've we've obviously got so many anti-discrimination laws in place about sexual preference, about race and ethnicity, and it's illegal to discriminate against anyone on the basis of their age in the workplace or in hiring. But I wonder in in, in practice how often anti-discrimination laws are actually thought about within companies and whether they're wrapped into the the diversity and inclusion sort of policies of companies as much as other factors, other, other diversity issues are. Third box, millennials. Oh, actually, it appears that we're all in a box. There's boxes everywhere. So what are some of the common generational stereotypes or boxes in the world of work? One example might be that if somebody is older, let's say from the boomer generation, that they are less fluent with technology. That is a pervasive belief and that's something that can actually be quite damaging because it can lead as a self-fulfilling prophecy into worse training for that cohort. That's Christy DePaul. I am the CEO of Founders, a content agency that serves organizations focused on the future of learning and work. And I'm also a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review on topics about career navigation and personal branding. 
Another generational stereotype might be that millennials are job jumpers. We don't like to stay in one place for too long. We will only be in a job for two years. And so we cannot be counted on as being loyal to a particular company or organization. And what that might lead to is organizations don't want to invest in people in this particular age group. But the thing is, these stereotypes are, of course, sweeping generalizations. But Chrissy DePaul says they've become a convenient shorthand. Not only for organizations, but very large and well-known consulting firms, as well as smaller consultants to base their insights on and try to sell organizations on, on certain types of approaches to, let's say, recruitment marketing or um, professional development. It's a really convenient way to put people in boxes, and it is possibly one of the most pervasive ways we continue to be biased against other people at work. And it almost seems permissible, even though it is inherently ageist. But Christy, why do we use these stereotypes then and even identify with them? So when we think about people, we are so diverse and complex. It's really difficult to try to consider what someone else's perspective might be. When you're able to put people into a cohort, whether or not that cohort actually exists, it helps people to make assumptions about how others will behave and what they prioritize. So what's the impact of these beliefs in the world of work? These beliefs can influence everything from how new teammates are onboarded, how we train people, how we mentor people, how our teams collaborate and communicate, and all of that can pose a really great risk to the organization in terms of age inclusivity and employee performance. It can impact um, engagement as well. I mean, one could extrapolate that that then turns into even greater issues in terms of internal pipelines, attrition, people can be scapegoated. Oh, so-and-so is from this generation, therefore they won't be on board with this new change. There are many, many costs, both seen and unseen. Hi, my name's Andrea Ho, and I'm currently the discipline lead for uh, radio and podcasting at the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. And so I've done a lot of frontline recruitment for myself and been involved in frontline recruitment for others as well. So what I've noticed in my own workplaces, uh, and I've worked a lot in uh, media and broadcasting, some people tend to think about it as a bit of a young person's game. And I don't think that it's the only profession that's like that. There are plenty of others. But I do ask myself why we think about professions in those terms. Is it because we think that you've got to be fast-paced? Is it because we want certain points of view or is it simply because we don't want to pay very much money? I think it's interesting to delve down into why we make blanket statements like that and ask ourselves, is it really to do with age or are there other factors and am I artificially considering age as being an important factor where perhaps it's not or perhaps it needs to be seen in a different way? Generational stereotypes are really interesting because no stereotype exists without there being some tiny grain or kernel of truth at the bottom of them. So, yeah, there's probably a little bit of truth to some of those intergenerational stereotypes. I think the question is to ask yourself, what kind of a manager are you? What kind of a leader are you? And if you are happy to go along with those stereotypes, and I would say that you're probably not a terribly thoughtful or nuanced leader, 
if you think about yourself as a thoughtful and nuanced leader, it should be well and truly within your grasp to say, I understand that those stereotypes exist, but I'm not subject to them and I don't take them as read. Why not be the kind of innovative leader who goes in and actually says, how can I challenge these generational stereotypes? Where is the young person who can take on a management role? How can I support them to be an emerging leader in my organisation? Where is the older person who's done the work and done the study and kept up with new technology and actually has things to teach not only younger people in the organisation, but other people of their age as well and can help bring them along. To me, that's a much more interesting workplace and the kind of workplace that I try and create and that I want to be a part of. We're told if we want to be great leaders and achieve good and, uh, and innovative outcomes, but we have to think differently. We have to do that in recruitment and hiring as well. So in the workplace, it's really important to be aware that even if you don't endorse ageist beliefs directly, you might unconsciously be behaving or feeling in ways which support those beliefs. That's Professor Julie Henry from the University of Queensland School of Psychology. She recently co-authored a study about ageism and how it doesn't always come from others, but can come from ourselves in what's called self-directed ageism. It's really good to catch ourselves when we're thinking negatively. When we have these self-doubts, flip it on its head. I'm never too old to learn this technology. I'm never too old to make these new connections at work. I'm just as good at this as I used to be. Or if I do feel there are things I struggle on, there are things I can do to compensate. Okay. And so that's the, that's the key message is that to be a master of our own destinies and to really try and use positive psychology for us, not against us. And so just being aware that, you know, if you are concerned you're too old and you don't learn it, then you are, you're, you know, you're actually fulfilling the stereotype. But at any age, if you feel you're being put in a box and it's not a box you want to be in, you should absolutely not allow yourself to be put in that box. Part of it is just recognising these boxes and challenging them and understanding that, no, this doesn't apply to me or, no, this is incorrect. So what are the red flags that we're directing ageism, either at ourselves or at others at work? Christy DePaul again. Warning signs in terms of your team might look like policies, whether they're formal or informal, that change based on what age a person is versus what they actually care about. If a manager, for example, has decided that everyone of a certain age group is going to get one benefit versus another. Like these people obviously need to have flexibility in their jobs because they are part of a group that are caregivers. Well, caregivers could be people of any age, as an example. It doesn't have to be someone with small children. It could be somebody who is part of a multi-generational household, someone who is taking care of elderly relatives, so or, or somebody with other like physical challenges. There are lots of situations that that would apply to that are not just within, you know, a certain decade or two of a person's life. Another example would be within the pages of a policy handbook. So if we're looking at policies that an organization has created, are they dictating what people can do or what resources they can access based on where they are in their career. If someone is newer to the workforce, do they necessarily need more training than somebody who has been in the workforce for decades? Possibly not. 
technology is changing, the world is changing, society is going through many different shifts. So if you're looking at professional development from a certain perspective and saying, we really need to invest in the younger employees versus those who are older, you're actually making an ageist decision. So what are some of the potential solutions to turn around any reluctance in hiring older workers? Sarah McCann-Bartlett again. First of all, we need to break the biases that are remaining around older workers. And one way to do that is through unconscious bias training. It shouldn't just be the recruiters that receive this training, though, because actually line managers have a really, really big say in recruitment. And it's also important that they don't have any bias when the new employee comes into the workplace as well. Second, we actually talk a lot about blind recruiting, which is actually taking certain characteristics off CVs. So it might be name, and in this case, it could be date of birth or dates that you went to college or did your trade. So what would you advise for us to exclude from our CV, especially if it details decades of work and experience? Don't put your age on your CV. That is absolutely not needed anymore. But a lot of organisations will receive CVs and they will have somebody who's not involved in the filtering and the decision making, actually stripping those CVs out of specific dates, names and identifiers that might actually create some sort of bias or unconscious bias in the the decision makers themselves. So you don't have to do it yourself. But if you've got a really long CV, nobody actually wants to read through five pages of of CV. You can, in the earlier stages of your career, just bundle them up if you wish to. Nobody um, will expect to see if you've got a really long and varied career, every single job that you've done. You don't, if you're 50 plus, you don't want to be putting down all your experience in that CV because it's going to become very clear very quickly your age. That's Stephanie Wood again. And so I think the advice that any recruiter would give is you lopping off the first 20 years of your experience. And to me, that's like, well, that's ridiculous because what if I did something that was just so germane and it was the first job I did out of university or the second or the third? Like, you don't want to know about that? You know, does that experience not count at all in your consideration of me as a potential candidate for this role? This is something Claire has done to help her get a foot back in the door. I learned fairly quickly on to adjust my resume. So whilst I've never lied about anything and I never would, it is not as obvious from the first introductory paragraph how old you can potentially guess me to be. And so I did that quite deliberately, recognising that covertly I was seen as too old, too experienced, even though I was looking at senior roles. But Andrea Ho sees it as a red flag from a workplace culture perspective. The problem of adjusting your CV downwards, if you like, to shave years off is pretty vexed. And again, it's one of those things that I'm so sad and disappointed to see. If that's the way that they treat you, that they think you have to hide experience and that's the only way you can get through the door, I'm not sure that the workplace culture is one that I would want to stay with for a long time. And the hiring manager, if that's the sort of workplace that you're projecting, I think you want to be very careful about that, partly because immediately you're going to exclude certain kinds of experience from your team, 
that's poor look for you in the long run and to your disadvantage. But uh, over time, you might find yourself subject to the same workplace culture that you've created. So be very careful about what you wish for because you may end up on the receiving end. Another thing Andrea advises to watch out for is telling job applicants who seem overqualified that they'll be bored, something she's been told herself in the last couple of years. They looked at me quite closely. I had several interviews over time, but ultimately they said no, which is fine. That's their option to do so. But when I asked why, the answer I got was, you'll be bored. We're afraid that you'll be bored. And I was really surprised by that. I had never heard that before. I went away and thought about it, and I still don't really know what I think about that answer. But I wonder, was it code for you have too much experience? We're worried about you being a troublemaker. We're worried about you perhaps usurping the manager. Uh, We're worried about you not wanting to just do menial tasks. But they didn't really ask me any of those questions. And I could easily have said, I'm actually really happy to do that for a year or two. How about we come to an agreement? I think I made the mistake of talking about how, um, for the price they were getting me, they had a bunch of extra skills that they could use to enhance uh, the work that they were doing. And they got that as part of the package. So I was kind of overselling myself, really. And I wonder whether in some organisations, overselling yourself, saying that you're capable of more, actually counts against you in some sort of way. I don't really understand why. I'd be really grateful to get that extra person and to think about how else I could use them in my organisation. But maybe that's challenging or even threatening for some. I don't know. People work for different reasons. That's Sarah McCann-Bartlett again. So they work for job satisfaction, some work for career progression, others work because they want to give back to the community or an organisation that they love. Being bored doesn't actually have anything to do with being overqualified. It actually is to do with how does this role and this organisation actually fit my needs at this particular point in time and my values? And by the way, why would you as an employer throw away experience? So Sarah, what are some of the benefits of having a multi-generational workplace, a land free of boxes? I think once we get into the workplace and we work with people of all kinds of diversity, that's the best way to actually break down stereotypes. And we think that, and there's some OECD research that supports it, that while people like to put age cohorts and into certain groups and label them boomers, millennials, <laughs> Gen X. What the OECD research has found is that we're way more alike across the generations than we are different. We're all actually looking for satisfying work. We're all looking for meaning in our work and we all want to be good at what we do and contribute. So They're not age-related desires, which I think is really interesting. For me, one of the great things about work is you actually make friends with or, or create strong relationships with people that you wouldn't ordinarily come across with 
if you weren't in the workplace. And I think that actually creating these strong relationships between generations will be breaking down those sorts of biases. And what we've found from our research is that employers are saying that when you put the generations together in your workplace to create greater age diversity, what you end up with is greater knowledge transfer. You have mentoring between older and younger workers. And interestingly, they say that the mentoring works both ways. It also helps, particularly if you have a phased retirement plan for older workers, that knowledge transfer can actually happen over a longer period of time. And so therefore it can be deeper because what a disaster when someone who's been a long-term employee walks out without that knowledge transfer, all those years of experience have actually gone. Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Kerry Dell and to producer Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. This episode was produced on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.